0: Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that we have it available to us in a language we can understand. And so we pray that as we consider it together today, right now, that you would teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness, equip us for every good work, we pray, and build your church through your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, keep your Bibles open. I've got copies of the... Uh... Gather Together book, we, if you're new with us or haven't been around for a while, we're, we're looking at this book in conjunction with a sermon series teaching through what might be called the doctrine of the church. Uh, the doctrine of the church, sometimes called ecclesiology, which we'll talk about in a moment. It's very important to get your head around what it is that God's doing, because God has a purpose for gatherings like ours. And Carl Dienick, a, a writer from Sydney, I think has done a very fine job in Fairly short book, fairly short chapters. Doesn't take long to read it, but it's a very helpful book. And so um, I've got seven copies here. If you haven't got yours yet, please come and see me. But we're going to continue our series by looking at, in particular, Ephesians two. Um, and with Ian's help, we're going to. Here we go. Um, I like getting words right as often as I can. Right, I, I like to use words correctly. When we read the Bible, it's really important that we have come to an understanding of what the original authors meant by the words that they use. And so, we don't want to read our thoughts into what they said. We need to try to understand their meaning and, and take hold of it. Words change their meanings over the years, um, and so words that we can be quite come quite accustomed to sometimes means something quite different from what they once meant now when it comes to the subject of church that's an issue and we'll talk about that a bit more but I just want to illustrate that the word nice is one that I dare say you're pretty comfortable with using right that was a nice meal right that was a nice today's a nice day isn't it right how many of you have greeted each other with that this morning it's a nice day well, what does nice mean? There was a movie a few years ago about a really nice guy. Right, now, I'm assuming that you would have some sort of a sense of what kind of a person that was. Now you've been told he's really nice. Well, in that sense, nice means vague and mild agreeableness. He's pleasant, somewhat inoffensive. Would you agree? Is that, is that a reasonable definition of niceness? Right, Inoffensive, pleasant, you know. Um, but he's really Nice. Well, that's not what nice has always meant. And so in 1815, directly following the terrible Battle of Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington said this. He said, I have lost 30,000 men. It has been a nice thing. The nearest run thing you ever saw in your life. Now, if you were to read that and think, oh, he's a a cad, he doesn't care about losing 30,000 men... Um, he thinks it's sort of pleasant and inoffensive and somewhat agreeable that's not what he meant he was using a more ancient form of the word nice a more ancient understanding now the word nice has a very old history lots of our words come from the latin language in latin the word nice literally meant not knowing it meant to be ignorant Uh, But as it came into French and then it came into English, it took on other meanings. It took uh, on the meaning of being clumsy or weak or poor or stupid. In its earliest use in English, it meant timid, somebody who was a bit of a scaredy cat. By the 1400s, it had become used for a person who was dainty and delicate. You can kind of see how these terms somewhat relate to each other. But by the 1500s, it meant to be precise or careful. And that's the sense in which the Duke of Wellington was using it. It became a word that you would use for something that was close and tight. So what he meant was, whew, that was a close thing, that battle. It was a nice thing. I lost. The, we only just made it. Now, we continue to use nice in that way. If you have a pair of gloves and you say, that's a nice fit... You're using the word nice in a way a bit like the Duke of Wellington. It's close. So in other words, he lost 30,000 men, but he only just won the battle. He didn't mean it was pleasant. He meant it was a really close thing. So words change their meaning over time. What about the word church? It's a word that gets used a lot. One way I work out what words mean is I type the word into Google News. Uh, I, I recommend you do it. And just see how the word's been used recently. So I typed it into Google News and uh, one of the most recent uses of the word church in a newspaper somewhere was this one uh, from the Guardian England, uh, the Guardian newspaper in England in April. Their writer, Simon Jenkins, is a great lover of architecture. He's a journalist and a historian, but he has a particular passion for historical architecture. And so he wrote this long article in the Guardian newspaper that had the heading, Saving Churches from Decay Should Be a National Responsibility. Now, this is a really interesting article. He's an atheist, and yet he loves buildings. And he's written a book about the most special churches in England and the most wonderful cathedrals in Europe. But he doesn't use them. But he's sad that they're not being used, and so he says since they're not being used and since they're in every village in England, the government should make sure they don't fall into disrepair. That's the point of the article. Now, it's sort of interesting, isn't it, that a man who has no interest in what goes on in the building hopes that the building won't fall apart. And he says to make sure it doesn't, the government needs to kick in the money. Now, when he says church, he means building, doesn't he? Right? If you were to say to someone, and it probably can't really happen here, or well, you might you might say it, you might be closer to the truth than you know. If you said, I'll meet you at church, well, is this a church? No. To most people in Mafra, if you said this is a church, they'd say, no, it's the Shire Hall. Yeah. Right? <coughs> uh, here's something you need to remember. In the Bible, the word church never ever not once means a building not once it couldn't and the reason it couldn't was because the earliest church building wasn't built until the third century the earliest building that was built for the purpose of christians gathering like we are today that's that's become known of was built at megiddo now there's a map of israel that's where jerusalem is megiddo's to the north and archaeologists have discovered this very ancient building that comes from about 230 AD otherwise early in the third century clearly the purpose of the building was so Christians could gather to remember the Lord Jesus to hear his word and to worship him Uh, and you can read some of the inscriptions on the floor uh, in the Greek language that, that tell you all of those sorts of things so the earliest Christian building that we know of came in the early third century until then churches were meeting And so when the Apostle Paul, who's the person who writes most about the church in the New Testament, when he says church, he never, ever, not once, means a building. And so if you think church building, you've got to change your thinking when you read the Bible. Now, if you're talking to someone down the street, it's very hard to explain these things very quickly. So if they say, oh, there's the Anglican church, there's no point arguing because that's just the way the words come to be used. But when you read the Bible, and see what it says about the church, please, scrap from your thinking any idea that we're talking about a building. We're not. So church is the English translation that's usually used for a word which in Greek was ecclesia. Now ecclesiology is the name of the study of the church. Anything with ology at the end means study of. So biology, geology, theology ecclesiology means the study of the church now john stott was an english pastor in the 20th century and a very fine one who wrote a lot about the church and he says ecclesiology or ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church is the most neglected doctrine among christians so here we are we turn up just about every sunday don't we but how often do we actually think about what we're doing how often do we think are we doing what the bible says we should be doing when we come together. Now I think it's important to try to uh, get these things uh, according to the the proportion and the weight of scripture. In the Bible or in the ancient world from which the Bible came, ecclesia was not a religious word. So if you spoke to a person who back in the day when Paul was writing the Bible and used that word, no one would have thought you were religious. It was not a religious word. It was used For political gatherings, chiefly. So in the ancient world, they didn't have parliaments like we do, but in, say, a city like Athens, all of the male citizens would gather to decide on public policy. Should we go to war? Should we raise taxes? Should we be fairer to our slaves? And all the citizens would come together, and the name of that meeting was the Ecclesia. It was a political gathering. So Paul uses a word that everybody in the ancient world was comfortable with. No one thought it was religious. It just means a group of people coming together. That's what we've done today. Now, in the book of Acts, chapter 19, we looked at this a little bit when we studied the book of Acts a while ago. Paul was in the city of Ephesus, and in Ephesus was a magnificent temple to the goddess Artemis, or Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a magnificent temple... It was massive, it dominated the Ephesian skyline and there were lots of people who made their living making little souvenir models of the temple and little souvenir models of the goddess who lived in the temple, so they thought. Now when Paul preached, quite a number of people turned and followed the Lord Jesus and the people who made the little models thought our business is going to be ruined if Paul keeps having this success And so they organised a riot. They wanted to get rid of Paul because he was a threat to their money-making. And so they dragged him into the theatre. And you can read this in the book of Acts chapter 19. And in Acts 19.32, we read, Some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Now, in the original Greek language, that word assembly is ecclesia. We could just as easily translate it for the church was in confusion. It's not a religious word, it just means a bunch of people come. Now, why did this bunch of people come together? For the purpose of killing Paul. Doesn't sound very religious, does it? It's a riot, and yet the word that Luke uses is ecclesia, because it's a gathering later on the town clerk comes and says if we don't stop this right the roman authorities will come in and they'll stop it and then we'll be in trouble he says if you seek anything further it should be settled in the regular assembly the regular ecclesia do you get the sense of that the word's not religious it just means a group of people coming together there's a regular assembly a regular ecclesia there's a chaotic one but in both cases they're a group of people coming together they're congregating the word ecclesia means congregation, assembly, or gathering. So are we a gathering here today? Have we gathered? Have we congregated? Have we assembled? Right? Now most schools have an ecclesia every week on Monday morning. Except they call it an assembly. It just means a group of people coming together. The same word is used when when the Bible was trans when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, uh the same word is used to describe the gathering of God's people at Mount Sinai for him to give the law and so in Deuteronomy chapter 5 Moses says these words the Lord spoke to all the all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire and so on and guess which word is assembly it's ecclesia when Peter in the book of Acts talks about that gathering he talks about it in Acts 7 he says Moses was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, in Greek, Ecclesia. So the earliest church gathering that we see in the Bible is the Israelites having been brought out of Egypt on the way to the Promised Land and they're gathered at Sinai. Why were they gathered? To hear God's word. They were there to hear God speak. So what are we? We're a gathering around God's word to hear God speak to us in the scriptures and that's what a church is it's a gathering of people who've come together in the power of the holy spirit to hear the word of god about his son the lord jesus and so donald robinson was a sydney uh, scholar and pastor and he he wrote the entry on church in a very helpful book called the new dictionary of biblical theology the new bible dictionary and he says church is not a synonym for the people of god it's an activity of the people of god in other words To say church is not another way of saying the people of God. Church is what happens when the people of God gather. So we right now are churching. You got it? Church is a gathering. Now we're members of the church and we scatter during the week. But when we come together we're churching. We're together. It's the gathering that makes you a church. Now you've really got to remember that because the, the word is abused and used in many other ways. It does not, the word church does not mean a political body like we could say the Catholic Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Baptist Church. It, it doesn't mean that. It means a group of people who come together around God's Word. So Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we're saved by grace to be gathered together. And so we've seen this chapter 1, uh, or chapter 2, um, verses 1 to 3 describes the great need of people and the great need is of people is that they're separated from God and chapter 2 verse 1 says people are dead in their trespasses and sins they're alive physically but dead spiritually they need to be made alive dead in trespasses and sins we know what a trespass is don't we it's where you step onto territory that's not yours you have no right to be there trespassing is that kind of deliberate sin where people do things that they shouldn't do sins on the other hand is just the natural tendency of people to fall short like an arrow that doesn't quite hit the target so trespasses speaks about deliberate sins sins just speaks about what it means to be human just never quite measuring up to God's standards now both of those things will make us subject to God's wrath To go on being dead in trespasses and sins, if we were to meet God without being forgiven, we would be subject to the the eternal expression of his wrath. That's a terrible place to be. But God being rich in mercy has transformed people that come to him through Jesus. So verse 4 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Right? God's love has been demonstrated, it's been shown to us because he sent his son to die on the cross. Now our only hope, the only hope for anyone rests in God's character. What's God's character like? Well, he's rich in mercy. God is not a tyrant. God is not an unfair boss who just loves to see people suffer and squirm. God is rich in mercy. And that's a good thing, isn't it? God loves to forgive. He longs to forgive. But he can't forgive what's not confessed. And so when we confess our sins and say, God, you're right, I need your help, God, being rich in mercy, forgives. And that's our only hope. But our forgiveness rests in God's character. And as a result of that, people are made alive when once they were dead. They've been saved by his grace. He's raised people up with Christ and seated them in the heavenly places. Now, what that means is the transformation that God does in people's lives is so complete that though we were once as good as dead, we've been made alive in Christ. So once we were dead while we were alive, but now we're eternal while we're mortal. And so our present status, if you put your trust in Jesus, you can count on this. Where's Jesus now? He's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And in Christ, you're as good as seated there too. So before you knew Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and since you were dead while you were alive, but if you've come to know Jesus as your saviour, you are eternal while you're still mortal. Unless Jesus returns, we will all die. But we're already eternal because we put our trust in him. And there's a part of us that will never die. And so all of that results in a wonderful new identity in verses 8 to 10. We've been saved by grace through faith. So it's an act of God's mercy and his generosity. There's no room for pride because we don't do anything to deserve it. We don't contribute anything to it. It's one of the great fallacies. It's one of the great lies that the devil puts in some people's brains that they can contribute to their salvation. You can't it's entirely as a result of God's gift and so we respond to God who is rich in mercy and we say I need your help I can't do this myself I must be forgiven please forgive me and God does it but we don't contribute anything to it the works that we do are as a result of what God does for us and so he prepares for us a life of good deeds in advance and so there's a lifestyle of good works now this is how it works how it works we 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 need to walk in a whole new way of life so we've been transformed from dead people into living people from dead people into eternal people and that needs to reflect itself in the way that we live so there's a new life and therefore a new lifestyle we walk in the good deeds that God's prepared us to do so moving into verse 11 we're starting to get to the heart of the doctrine of the church now this is where paul starts to think about it now paul takes whenever he says therefore that means think about all that and now think about this new application something is something has to happen as a result of what we've just been talking about and so he says to the gentiles gentiles were people who were not jews the jews saw the world this way there's us and everyone else there's jews and the rest and all the rest were just gentiles right so the church in Ephesus is made up mainly of Gentiles with some Jews and Paul is writing this letter to try to get them to work together not to see themselves according to the old divisions but to come together as one new people and so he says to the Gentiles remember what you used to be your life BC before Christ remember you were separated from Christ it's as though they've come to the edge of a bridge, with a bottomless pit between and they have no means of getting across they were separated from christ but not only that they were alienated from the commonwealth of israel they were aliens and strangers now the problem with that we'll we'll get to in a moment they were strangers to the covenants of promise so god made promises to israel he didn't make the promises to any other nation just to israel so to have any hope at all people need to make connection with the god of israel So alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and that means they're without hope. People without hope and no future. Now, why is that a problem for Gentiles? Well, it's because God made promises to Israel and no one else. And so because of that, the only way of being put right with the one God that rules the world is to come through the son that he sent the king the true king of israel now this is a problem for for the ancient church because wherever paul went he started by preaching in the synagogues now in the ancient world where the bible comes to us from jews had scattered all the way through europe through north africa and in asia as well so when paul went traveling around to preach the good news of jesus he started where the jews were because he was telling them that everything that they'd read which pointed ahead to a day that that God was going to send the Messiah, he says, I've discovered him, and I need to tell you about him. His, His name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the one that God had promised to send. But Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other, not at all. So for a Jew to think about a Gentile, they just thought of them as being beyond the scope of God's love so William Barclay is a very helpful commentator on the background of the text of the Bible and he says Jews had immense contempt for Gentiles he says that Jews believed that Gentiles were created by God only to be the fuel for the fires of hell that's not very complimentary is it but that's what they believed Jews believed that God loved only Israel of all the nations that he'd made and so that reflected itself in the way that they treated Gentiles. It was not lawful to give help to a Gentile woman in childbirth for a Jew but that would be to bring another Gentile into the world. We don't want that, that's what they said. The barrier between Jews and Gentiles was absolute. If a Jew married a Gentile, the funeral of that Jew was carried out. They were regarded as dead. Such a contact with a Gentile meant that they were as good as dead. Entering a Gentile house made a Jew unclean. Right. That's how the Jews thought of the Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles didn't think any better of the Jews. So an ancient Roman historian by the name of Tacitus, lots of Jews had spread themselves all through the Roman Empire, and this is what he wrote about Jews from a Gentile perspective. He said, They were the race detested by the gods. All their customs are perverse and disgusting. Their religion is tasteless and mean. They don't eat with or intermarry with others. Their religion has no images. So he couldn't work out how you can have a religion where you can't see the God. The Jews are extremely loyal toward one another and always ready to show compassion. But toward every other people they feel only hate and enmity. Tacitus said Jews were the vilest of nations. So you've got Jews and you've got Gentiles together in the church. How are those two viewpoints going to get along with each other? Do they have separate morning tea? Do they join each other in Bible study? Do they go on camps together? Right? How are we going to make this whole new arrangement work? That's the question that Paul's addressing here because that's how Jews and Gentiles thought of each other. What hope was there for reconciliation? Now Paul talks about it in this passage and he uses images imagery which comes to us from the the Jewish temple there was a section of the temple we've talked about this before but it doesn't hurt to go over it again there was a section of the temple into which only Jewish men were allowed to go women weren't allowed to there was the court of the men and there was the court of the women so there was strict separation but to be in the court of the women you could only be in there if you were a Jewish woman outside of that there was an area for Jews that hadn't gone through all the elaborate stages of purification. So if you'd done all of this purifying washing, if you'd bought your sacrifice, then you could go into the inner part. Only the priests could go into the temple proper, but women and men could go into these places so long as they were purified. But beyond the fence for the purified Jews was the court of the Gentiles. And there was a fence that separated the two. And on that fence... Carved in stone was an inscription which pronounced death on any gentile that went further. So this is what those words say. No foreigner may enter within the balustrade around this sanctuary and enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he be put shall be put blame for the death which will ensue. Now the Jews weren't allowed to kill people, but the Romans turned a blind eye to it. And so in Jerusalem, if a non-purified well, if a Gentile tried to go into the area for Jews they would be put to death so can you see how, how deep the, the chasm was between Jews and Gentiles and now Paul's saying Gentiles you're welcoming God's people so how are they going to work it out so verses 13 to 18 Paul describes what's happened there's a transformation people who were once dead have been made alive and this transformation is equally the same for Jews and Gentiles and so he says in verse 13 of chapter 2 but now in Christ you who once were far off have been brought near how by the blood of Christ it cost the death of the Lord Jesus to effect this transformation Now he's quoting there from the book of Zechariah that Vicky read to us before because Zechariah was written at a time when the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians and the people who'd come back from exile in Babylon were very slow to rebuild it. And so the temple was still a ruin and Zechariah the prophet had to say to the people, you've got to get busy with building the house of the Lord. But people were too busy building their own places. And so the temple was still a ruin. So Zechariah says, come on. But then Zechariah looks to the future and says, there's going to come a time when a person who's going to be a king and a priest will come. Now, verse 12 of chapter 6 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, the language that's used in Zechariah 6 tells us that this person that Zechariah is looking ahead to, doesn't say when he's going to come, but he says there's going to come a day when a man will be both king and priest. Now, in Israel's history, the king was separate from the priest. The priest was separate from the king, both two different people. Zechariah says there's going to come a day when king and priest will be one person and he's going to rebuild the temple. But later on in Zechariah chapter 6, he says that that priest king is going to be helped in the building of the temple by people who are far off those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the lord now the people who Zechariah was writing to speaking to probably wouldn't have understood that but Paul does because he looks back to that priest king that Zechariah prophesied said it must be Jesus And Paul now uses this as evidence for what the church is. The church is the gathering of people who once were near with those who were far off, Jews and Gentiles. And they're brought together through Jesus. So it works like this. All of those factors were true for Gentiles once, separated for Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants without hope. But there's an incredible transformation through the cross of Jesus. But now... You who once were far off have been brought near. Gentiles and the Jews have been reconciled through Jesus into a new humanity. And so there's no distinction in the church between Jews and Gentiles. They might once have hated each other, but Paul says you've got no excuse to now because you've both been saved through Jesus. And that means you are equal. So what God is doing through the cross is creating a whole new humanity. And that's what the church is. The church is a gathering of people, supernaturally transformed in their hearts, who now become the prototype of what God's going to do throughout the whole world of bringing people together as one. Where else would you find reconciliation like that? Where else will you find sworn enemies, people who had been brought up to hate the other from birth, coming together in love and unity. Where else do you see it? You don't. It's only in Christ and only in the church. Now that's what's happening here. We're not a particularly ethnically diverse church, but ethnic diversity is the very heart of what Jesus is doing. He's bringing people from everywhere together as one into a new humanity because Jesus is our peace and he's the only hope for the world. So to go back to the temple illustration, there's this dividing wall of hostility that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, and that's been overcome through Jesus. And so those who were once far off are now welcome into the family of God, along with the people who have always been near. But they all need to come through the Lord Jesus. And so this is reconciliation that can only come through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul goes on to talk about the Ephesians' life in Christ. He says, Jews and Gentiles each share access to God. If you've got the idea anywhere in your head that Jews are somewhat closer to God than the... Jews who become Christians are closer to God than us, it's not true. We each share the same privileges. And each of us has an equal role in temple building because the church is the temple. And so... To go back to his language in verse 19, Paul says, "You're no longer strangers and aliens; you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Fellow citizens. It's like we've had a citizenship conferring ceremony where we've had our allegiance to one nation changed to another, uh, and this is all built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which means for us the Old Testament, and the New Testament." Uh, the the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles who wrote the New Testament. That's the foundation of this thing. But have a look at these words from verse 20 to 22. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now this is the big take home for today. Who are we as we gather? We're the temple that the priest-king is building through those who are far off. The church, wherever it gathers, is like a temple because we have God living in our midst in the form of his Holy Spirit. And so what is a church? Well, one way of thinking about it is it's the community of the reconciled, people who have each put their trust in Jesus and who now have that as their unity as they come together. Uh, Church is the gathering of God's people in order to meet Jesus Christ in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit and in fellowship with another. That's what Peter Jensen says. The gathering of God's people, the, the ecclesia, the churching of God's people in order to meet Jesus Christ in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Church is not a building and yet it is a building in a spiritual sense because we have become the temple of God. We're members of God's household. Now, if you know Downton Abbey, the members of the household are the servants. They're the ones who live downstairs and they serve the people who live upstairs. We've become members of God's household. But we're also a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's who we are. As you read Deaneck's book, and I hope you will, as you consider the scriptures, we've got to get our heads around the fact that God is doing something wonderful in the world and his instrument is the church. He's creating a whole new vision of humanity where former enemies are coming together, not as friends, but as brothers and sisters. Well, not just as friends. And so the church is the gathering of fellow servants being built together into God's house by the Spirit. Now, is that how you think of Mafra Community Church? Because if it's if it's not, it should be. Because that's straight from the Bible doesn't matter that we're not building in a living working in a fancy building doesn't matter at all because church is what happens in the building it's the gathering now the image there of being built into a temple is a pretty powerful one what can you do with a brick you can trip over it (laughs) we are being built brick by brick think of yourself as a brick 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 by brick, we're being built into the temple of God. That's what Zechariah's prophecy was all about. But we're being built brick by brick. Can we do without your part of the wall? No. There's only one cornerstone, that's Jesus. But the whole idea of this imagery of being built together into a temple means that no one can be done without. But you can't be the kind of Christian that God wants you to be if you stay home or if you stay away or never turn up because the whole point of the church is that it's a new temple a temple that supersedes the bricks and mortar one it's a spiritual temple because we're where God lives so as a result of that I'm going to ask that we pray this prayer together which is based on the words of Paul that we've just taken except that we're going to personalise them all of the pronouns in this passage are plural so everything that if it says you it means you's but if it says we it means us right now i'm going to ask that we pray this together and i'm going to ask that you pray it regularly Uh, look at ephesians 2 and turn that into your prayer for Mafra community church it's a prayer which comes via paul through the holy spirit so it must be a good prayer but if we all pray this and if we believe this it's going to be for the strengthening of our church and for the growth of our witness so can you join with me in praying this prayer And we'll finish with this. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of your household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as our chief cornerstone. In him we are joined together and rising to become a holy temple in the Lord. Please continue to build Mafra Community Church together in Christ to become a dwelling in which you live by your spirit. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in his church, we pray. Amen. Now, do you believe it? What are you going to do about it? That's the challenge, right? But this is a vision of the church that comes straight from the word. Uh, we need each other. And, of course, Jesus is our cornerstone. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we uh, we trust that you will cause each of us to want to be bricks in the building that you're building uh, and that you would help us each to make our contribution. Uh, Father, these things we've prayed together, these things we've considered together, make them very real to us and help us each to do our part in the in the work of building and now that you've brought us from being far off to near. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.